Eric, welcome. Do you want to introduce what you're going to do and start us in prayer? Yeah, I'll do that. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for setting everything up. It's good to be with everybody here. I am. Um, let's just bow our heads in prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for our time together that we can look into your word and learn more about your promises. And I do pray, Lord, that you give us a clarity of mind so that we would understand what the scriptures are saying. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the data so that we can understand your word more perfectly, that we'd be those who are persevering until the day you come for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, dear ones, last time we were in the book of Joel, remember last week we were in the section of Joel 228 through 32, which is all about God's ultimate restoration. He's going to send the Holy Spirit in the last days. That was the promise. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't just come upon a prophet or the mediator of the covenant like Moses, but the great promise that Joel gives us is that the Holy Spirit would come upon all mankind meaning yes, Jew and Gentile. Yes, it doesn't matter if you're a prophet or not. Every single person who's called by the Lord is going to be given the Spirit. Now, remember, we looked at last week the, the allusion back to Numbers chapter 11, where Moses longed for the day that the Holy Spirit, again, would not come just upon him, but all of God's people would be those who would prophesy. We also talked about what prophecy was in the functional sense. Yes, there were prophets, who gave us objective revelation in the scriptures. But according to 1 Corinthians 14, believers may prophesy one by one, not by giving new revelation, but by giving implications, applications of scripture. So we looked at that as well. Now today, as we continue on in verses 30 through 31, we came to the section about the sun, moon, and stars. Again, the sun and moon in particular being darkened. Joel 2, 30 through 31, this is after the sending of the Spirit. The Lord says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, dear ones, what I'm claiming in this passage is these things occur within the 70th week of Daniel, within that last seven years, okay? Now, what's interesting is, the last days that are ushered in by the giving of the Spirit, which come about by the first coming of Christ, the last days ushered in the era in which the day of the Lord can come. So I think that's why Joel is connecting it. And later in a couple of slides, I'll show you that's how Peter, I think, understood it. So the last days ushered in the arena or the era of time in which at any time the day of the Lord can break forth. Now, as I say at any time, I want you to notice on the screen that it seems to be that there are precursors prior to the day of the Lord. Notice it says the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, I've looked at the Hebrew for this term before, and it means just that. There's no way around it. There is a precursor. But what's very interesting is when you start unpacking the context of Joel chapter 2 here, the very next chapter is about the final battle where God brings all the enemies to surround Jerusalem. And I'll show you that in just a moment. The other thing I want to point out is notice this phrase, great and awesome. The term great there, gavol, 
And awesome can literally be rendered terrible. It's yareh. Okay, so it's gavol yareh. It's, it's the great and terrible or great and awesome day of the Lord. That phrase only occurs one other time in our Bible, and it occurs here in Malachi 4.5. And what's very interesting is you're going to see more precursors or another precursor prior to the day of the Lord. Malachi 4.5, it says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Notice the phrase again, Gavol Yerah. I know it's rendered terrible here and awesome here, but they're the same term in Hebrew. Notice the term great is the same. It's the same phrase. Okay, now notice in this instance, Elijah comes before the great terrible day of the Lord. Here, the sun is going to be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. In other words, the, there's going to be a cosmic upheaval before the great and terrible or awesome day of the Lord. Now, here's how we understand this. This would seem to refute the doctrine of imminence. How can you have an imminent event if there must be precursors? Well, here's the difficulty. When we unpack all of the data, what you really have is a day of the Lord that is broad, a broad period of time that begins at the inception of Daniel's 70th week. That begins without any signs. But within the broad day of the Lord, there is a narrow day of the Lord. In fact, I believe it's referring to the 24-hour day in which the Messiah comes to destroy the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. Now, let me begin to build that case that I'm not just making this up, that the data is really there. The first thing I want to do is begin with Joel 2, 30 through 31. And what I want you to understand is right after he talks about the great and awesome day of the Lord, in the very next chapter, literally just two verses later, he begins talking about this final battle. The battle in which God will bring all of the nations to surround Jerusalem, in which the Messiah is going to intervene. Okay, that's going to be in that final day. In fact, turn your Bibles to Joel 3, 1 through 2. Now, we'll get into greater detail later in this text, but turn for now to Joel 3, verses 1 through 2. And again, this is just two verses later. This is the context for the great and awesome day of the Lord. So notice Joel 3, 1 through 2. Notice here, the Lord says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Now, notice this battle is going to happen at the valley of Jehoshaphat. That literally means the valley of decision. The, the term literally Yahweh show fate. Yahweh is the judge. All right, now I believe that that's occurring at the final battle that surrounds Jerusalem. So in other words, if you want to write an equation, Joel 3 is the same battle that's alluded to in Zechariah 14, and it's the same battle that you see in Revelation chapter 19, where the Christ returns at the end of the 70th week. That's the narrow day of the Lord. And there are signs that occur within the 70th week prior to that, that will let people know that that day is coming. Why? Because it's going to be so severe, they're going to need to persevere. That's why Jesus gave them signs within the 70th week of Daniel. So 
the sun being turned into darkness and the moon into blood means there's going to be cosmic upheavals within that last 70th week prior to the last day when the Lord Jesus comes to judge the enemies in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, next time we'll talk about the Valley of Jehoshaphat. There's some debate as to whether that's the the Jezreel Valley where Armageddon begins or whether it's the Kidron Valley that's adjacent to Jerusalem. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because we know the battle culminates surrounding Jerusalem. Okay, so again, yes, there are going to be signs prior to the narrow day of the Lord. But again, there's no signs prior to the broad day of the Lord. Now, let me show you another one here. Notice Malachi 4, 5. The claim is that Elijah comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, let's start looking at some of the biblical data surrounding Elijah and his coming. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. Again, turn your Bibles to Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, remember, as you're turning to Matthew 17, again, verses 10 through 13, we, if we read the chapter of Matthew 17 in the beginning, it was the Mount of Transfiguration. And isn't it interesting who was on the mountain with Jesus? Well, Moses and Elijah. Now, what I'm going to claim is that those two come again, witnesses like them, in the 70th week of Daniel, prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you remember the words that were spoken from the Heavenly Father were a combination of Deuteronomy 18.15 and Psalm 2.7. They were really put together, where the Lord said of Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And the reason I'm citing this is because Peter himself said in 2 Peter chapter 1, that that affirmation by the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration was proof that Jesus was coming again. In other words, when Peter was dealing with false teachers who said Christ is not coming, Peter's proof that he was, was what was cited on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration was God demonstrating that this is his son who has the right to rule over the nations. That's how Peter understood it. So there's an eschatological aspect of the Mount of Transfiguration. And so right after this occurs, listen to the question that the disciples ask. This is Matthew 17, 10. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Okay, so stop there. If in fact Christ is the Messiah, they can't conceive of the Messianic age dawning without Elijah coming first. All right? Now, what you're going to see here is Jesus is going to affirm that John the Baptist is an Elijah-like figure, but he does not rule out the fact that Elijah is coming. Okay, notice what he says, verse 11. Jesus answered them and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Notice verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then it says, verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, dear ones, notice in verse 11, 
And I'm looking at my screen. I was going to tell you to look on my screen, but you can't look at my screen. Hope you're, hopefully you're looking in your Bible. But notice in verse 11 where Jesus says that Elijah is coming and will restore all things. And then he says in verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah already has come. There's a construction in Greek that Bob knows about, and I'm sure Dana is aware of this. It's um, In the Greek, it's mende. And what it literally means is on the one hand and on the other. And so when Jesus is using this, he's saying, yes, on the one hand, Elijah is coming, but on the other, he has already come. And so in this construction, what I believe Jesus is affirming is that you can't get rid of either concept. Um, think, of, think of it this way. If you talk to a, a guy about being an NFL quarterback and you ask them, is it important to have a strong arm to be able to throw the ball a long ways? Or is it more important to be accurate when you throw? I think the answer would be, on the one hand, it's important to be able to throw the ball hard and a long ways to have a strong arm. But on the other hand, it's also important to be accurate with your throw. In other words, both are true. Neither are excluded. That's exactly what Jesus is saying by the men-day construction on the one hand and on the other. Neither is excluded. Elijah is coming in the future. Now, where do we see evidence that this interpretation is correct? Well, in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, we see evidence of a Moses and Elijah-like figure coming again before the final battle in the last part of the tribulation period, the great tribulation. Okay, so turn your Bibles to Revelation 11, verses 3 through 6. Revelation 11, verses 3 through 6. Please turn your Bibles there, because I want you to see that Jesus wasn't blowing bubbles. He was serious that, yes, Elijah is coming again prior to the great and terrible day of Yahweh, before that day that Jesus returns to judge the enemies surrounding Jerusalem. So notice here in Revelation 11, verses 3 through 6. Now, as you're turning there, the context is the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven. So this is the last three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. That's how long the two witnesses will testify. Revelation 11, three through six. Notice what it says. It says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,200 in sackcloth. Now stop there. How long is 1,260 days? That's three and a half years. Remember, the Hebrews used a 30-day calendar month based on the, uh, the lunar calendar. Okay? Notice verse 4. It says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Now stop there. Let's think back. We just read that the, the, the rain will be shut up in the sky. Who did that in the Old Testament? Well, Elijah did, didn't he? You can look at 1 Kings chapter 17. And remember, the rain only came except by Elijah's mouth. So if Elijah didn't want to put rain, he rain didn't happen. So one of these witnesses is described as being an Elijah-like character. 
Now notice the other one. It says in verse 6, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth and every plague as often as they desire. Who did that back in Exodus? Well, Moses did. So isn't it interesting, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you had two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, who were establishing the fact and the credentials of Jesus Christ. Why? Because every fact is going to be established by two witnesses, according to according to Deuteronomy 19.15, steward witnesses of the law and the prophets bearing testimony to who Christ is. Now, the ultimate testimony came from the Father himself. Remember, Elijah and Moses were gone. It was only Christ. And the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But isn't it interesting? In the very 70th week of Daniel, the last three and a half years, you have Moses and Elijah showing up again prior to the Messiah intervening to restore all the promises to Israel by destroying their enemies at the uh, end of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so let's summarize then. What I'm pointing out is that whether it's the sun, moon being darkened before the great and awesome day of the Lord, or it's Elijah coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord is at the end of the 70th week, and these precursors happen prior to that. That's called the narrow day of the Lord. Now, this will make it probably easier for you to understand. Let me just pull ahead here to my handy-dandy timeline. Let me just point this out. You and I are living in the last days. Okay, so we're living in the last days. That was ushered in at the first advent of Christ. Remember, according to Joel 2, 28 uh, through 30 that we had read, God sent his spirit in the last days. That's how Joel is going to apply it. So you and I are living in the last days. And at some point, this 70th week of Daniel will come forth. Now, the reason I call it the 70th week is, remember, there's a final seven years. I This is the first three and a half. At the midpoint, you have the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple. Then you have another three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. Okay, after that 70th week, the last seven years. So... From here to here is seven years. After that, you're going to have the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And then after that, you're going to have the eternal states. Okay? Now, what I'm claiming is that the broad day of the Lord begins here at the inception of the 70th week, and it extends really all through eternity. In a sense, it just goes on forever. It's the broad day of the Lord. But within that broad day of the Lord, there's a narrow day that sometimes the prophets would refer to, and that's the day that the Messiah would return to destroy the enemy surrounding Jerusalem, okay? So the narrow day of the Lord isn't another day of the Lord. It's a subset of the broad day of the Lord. So again, I've, I've used this analogy numerous times, but sometimes they use the day to refer to a broad period of time, the prophets, and sometimes they were referring in these instances in Joel and Malachi to the narrow day of the Lord, a 24-hour period, okay? So what I'm claiming is that there are signs prior to the narrow day, but not the broad day. So let's ask ourselves the questions. What about Elijah coming in Malachi 4, verse 5? Well, we just read Revelation 11, and Revelation 11 occurs in the last three and a half years. Oops, sorry, got the wrong order there. Notice here the two witnesses come, Moses and Elijah. 
they come during the last three and a half years. Does everyone see that? So I'm answering question one. What about Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of Yahweh? Well, they do. Moses and Elijah-like figure, according to Revelation 11, will prophesy the last three and a half years prior to that final battle that Joel is referring to in Joel 3. Okay, that's that's what's going on. So it's the same, Malachi is talking about the same thing. Elijah does come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, what about the sun, moon, and stars? Well, interestingly enough, throughout the 70th week of Daniel, there are many cosmic disturbances. In fact, we have five of them. The first one occurs at the sixth seal. I believe that's within the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Then you're going to have another one at the fourth trumpet. Then you're going to have another one at the fifth trumpet. Then you're going to have another one at the fourth bowl. And finally, you have one at the very end of the 70th week. Okay, that's the final darkening that occurs as the Messiah is going to come and judge the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, verse 29, because I want you to see that there is a final darkening that occurs just prior to the narrow day of the Lord. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, 29. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, 29. So again, through the book of Revelation, we have five cosmic disturbances. Four of them are listed in Revelation. The fifth is actually mentioned in Matthew 24, 29. Now, how do we know this occurs at the end of the 70th week? Well, here's how you know. Matthew 24, 29. Notice Jesus says, but immediately, now stop there. Immediately means there's no break in time. Okay, there's no gap. All right, a gap theory would be nullified by that term. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, stop there. Hope everyone's in Matthew 24, 29. What does he mean by those days? Well, he's talking about the 70th week of Daniel. That's what he's been talking about the entire time. So after the 70th week of Daniel is over, what's going to happen? It says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Again, these are the same cosmic disturbances that Joel was saying would happen today before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. In fact, the 70th week is characterized by them, okay? So yes, they tip you off to when the narrow day of the Lord comes, a subset of the broad day, which begins here and goes into eternity, okay? I, now, I hope that makes sense. That That's how I think we should understand it. Now, let me make the case that there really is a broad day of the Lord and a narrow day, because some people think, well, this is just special pleading. So what, what I want to do is show you, no, this is what the data suggests. Turn your Bibles. I'm going to prove to you that the, the broad day of the Lord is real. But I'm not making it up. It's not Eric Dalma saying it, but it's the biblical data. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And I'm going to show you, yes, the, the day of the Lord is seen as a broad period of time by the apostles, especially Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Please turn your Bibles there. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 10. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 3.10. Now, as you turn there, you're going to see Peter dealing with these false teachers who said that Jesus wasn't coming back. 
So that's why earlier in 2 Peter 1, he cited the Mount of Transfiguration as proof that he was. Why? Because Psalm 2 was cited by the Father. And the Father was affirming that his Son has the right to rule over the nations, therefore he has to come back. That was Peter's evidence that, yes, they had the right interpretation of the Scriptures. So now in 2 Peter 3, he's dealing with these scoffers who are saying the day of the Lord isn't coming, Jesus isn't coming, Life is going to go on as it always has. Notice what he says, 2 Peter 3.10. Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Stop there. Now, Jesus says that his parousia comes like a thief. Paul says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. The whole point of the thief imagery is that there's no warning. That's the only point to it. What does the thief imagery mean? There's no warning. That's all it means, okay? The term kleptes is some thief who uses stealth. Now, let me ask you this. Would it be a sudden arrival of the day of the Lord if you knew all of these events within the 70th week had transpired, and then all of a sudden the day of the Lord was just here? Well, no, that would not be thief-like. Why? Because you had so many precursors. You had so much advanced warning. It is, remember how Jesus described it in Matthew 24? It was like the days of Noah. They're eating, drinking, and giving in marriage. That's life as it always was. Remember, can you say that life is going on as normal in the 70th week of Daniel? When you lose a quarter of the earth's population, eight times worse than any warfare that we've ever experienced in the history of the planet right at the beginning of it? In fact, the very second seal, the beginning of the 70th week, it says he took peace from the earth. Okay, so no, you're not going to be saying that life is going on as normal. No, the only time you could say that and you could be taken off guard, it comes suddenly like a thief would be at the beginning. So I think clearly Peter is linking the day of the Lord to the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel by using the thief imagery. But notice what he goes on to say. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away. By the way, that's a form of erkamai. Okay, he says, with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, dear ones, let's think about this for just a moment. When is it in the scriptures from other data that we have that we know that the earth and the heavens are going to be burned up and replaced by the new heavens, the new earth and the new Jerusalem? Well, we know that occurs after the millennial kingdom. Now, how do we know that? Turn your Bibles to Revelation 21.1. I'm going to show you that, yes, Peter sees the day of the Lord as a broad period of time. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 21.1. And you're going to see that when the heavens are burnt up and the earth, etc., they pass away. That's after the millennial kingdom. Revelation 21, verse 1. Hope you've turned your Bibles there. Notice here, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away. By the way, the term passed away is the same form that's used in 2 Peter 3.10 when he says that the heavens will pass away. So 2 Peter 3.10, when Peter says the heavens will pass away, you see the same form now being used in Revelation 21.1. For the first heaven and first earth, earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. So here's the point. 
What Peter is saying is that the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3.10 becomes like a thief without any warning, which has to be here. But it extends past the millennial kingdom into the eternal states. It's a broad period of time. Why? Because the day of the Lord is the time period in which God saves his people and judges his enemies. Now, for you and I who trust in Jesus Christ, the moment we're raptured, we're saved. We're safe, never to be traumatized again by anything that happens by the world. But the enemies of God are going to have various judgments that come upon them that culminate in the eternal lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, which is hell. Okay, so that's why the day of the Lord is conceived as a broad period of time. Okay, so now what I want to do is show you that this broad day of the Lord must start here at the beginning of the 70th week. And I want you to turn to one more verse to prove this, that I'm not just making this scheme up. It's really inherent to the scriptures. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. The reason I want you to turn there is there are four terms used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3 that really prove the day of the Lord must begin at the inception of the 70th week. Now, the reason I'm laboring this is I'm establishing the broad day of the Lord does begin here, and yet there is a narrow day of the Lord in which you have signs occurring. I'm showing you that the data that we're making isn't something that we're contriving. It's inherent to the text itself. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. What's the discussion there? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Notice Paul says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. Now, four terms that show us this means the day of the Lord begins here, the broad day. The first term is, again, the term thief. Remember, in the scriptures, there's two different terms that can be used for thief. A lastase, which is a robber or thief that uses force, or a kleptase, which is a thief that uses stealth. Here, the term is kleptase. The idea is stealth. And again, we know that because that's how Jesus used it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He talked about the days of Noah, that, that life would be going on as it always had, and that his coming would be like a thief, okay? Well, the only time that you can say life is going on as it always has is during the last days, but not within the 70th week of Daniel, okay? So the only way that the day of the Lord can come in a stealthy-like manner is if it begins at the inception of the 70th week. Why? Because in the 70th week, you have Antichrist, you have peace taken from the earth, you lose a quarter of the earth's population, you have demons that are coming up out of the abyss, you have the sun, moon, and stars being darkened. I don't know if any of you have noticed that, but that's not normal. Okay? So whatever the thief is, imagery, it's connected to normalcy. While the people were saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Okay? Think about in Noah's day. Was there anything to tip them off other than Noah's preaching that the wrath of God was coming? No. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. They didn't have Nexad radar. They didn't have any, they didn't have a weather balloon. There was nothing to tip them off. Life was going on as it always was. That's why Jesus says they were eating, drinking, and given in marriage. 
Jesus' point isn't that they were sinful. Let me ask you, is it sinful to eat and drink? No. Is it sinful to be given in marriage? No. Jesus' point in Matthew 24 by bringing up the days of Noah is not that it was sinful. That's true. But that's not Jesus' point. It was that life was going on as it always has. That's why it comes like a thief. Okay? Second point. Notice the term peace and safety in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. Or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. It happens while they're saying peace and safety. By the way, a little grammar here. There's a subjunctive mood there that's used that was kind of interesting to me. The verb saying, notice the unregenerate are saying peace and safety. The term saying there is a subjunctive mood. I did a lot of research into that because sometimes it has to do with desire or possibility. But I think here it's used for a statement that's really an axiomatic statement. Um, it, and it's, it gets kind of technical, but I think the whole point is the ESV, if anyone has that version, they render it, they will be saying or they will be declaring peace and safety. That's what's going on here. It's axiomatic that when this happens, the people of the unregenerate world will be declaring that they have peace and safety. Now, the reason I'm saying that that proves the beginning of the broad day of the Lord happens here is because at the very beginning of the 70th week, peace is taken from the earth. It says that in Revelation 6, verses 3 through 4, which all of the tribulation groups really agree is the beginning of the 70th week. So if you're pre-wrath, you're mid-trib, you're post-trib, pre-trib, we all agree that that's the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Well, if peace is being taken from the earth because there's such great warfare here, how could they be saying peace and safety after that? Because after all, this time period will be the worst warfare that the world has ever seen. In fact, so bad is it, Jesus says, if the days weren't cut short, no flesh would survive. Okay, so the only way that people could be saying peace and safety is here, life in the last days. Okay, third point, notice the destruction comes upon them suddenly. Now, does suddenly, some post-tribulationalists believe that this is the only day of the Lord that happens here. Well, is that sudden destruction? No, it's been going on for seven years. They've had the worst warfare that they've ever seen. You lose a quarter of the earth's population in chapter 9 of Revelation, and you lose another third of the earth's population. The demons coming from the abyss, it's horrific. No, it's that wouldn't be sudden destruction, but sudden destruction would be here because life had gone on as it always had. There was nothing to tip them off, just like the days of Noah. Okay, the final term, the fourth one that tips us off that this day of the Lord does begin at the inception of the 70th week is the phrase labor pains. Why? Well, all scholars typically see the labor pains beginning at the inception of the 70th week. In fact, if you go to Alan Kirshner, he has a book on the pre-wrath view of the tribulation. On page 20 of his book, he'll show you that the beginning of birth pains occur in the first three and a half years. Jesus himself affirms that in Matthew 24, verse 8. So when did the beginning of the birth pains happen? In the beginning of the 70th week. Notice the day of the Lord to the Apostle Paul begins like labor pains. Okay, when does that happen? At the beginning of the 70th week. Okay, so for those reasons, those four reasons, we know that the day of the Lord begins at the inception of the 70th week. 
Again, there's nothing to tip us off as to when the broad day of the Lord occurs. Again, the broad day of the Lord extends all the way into eternity. All right, but the narrow day is that great and awesome day when the Messiah goes to defeat his enemies, and there are signs before that. That's, I think, the best reading of the data. That's how you can have imminence. You don't know when the broad day of the Lord will break forth, but you can also have signs prior to the narrow day. Again, the narrow day isn't a separate day of the Lord. It's a subset of the broad day of the Lord. And sometimes the prophets focused on the broad, and sometimes they focused on the narrow. And again, just like you and I sometimes use the term day to refer to a literal 24-hour period, and sometimes a broad period of time. All right? So I think that's the best understanding of that. Now, um, does anybody have any questions, comments thus far? And I'm going to move on from that. But I just wanted to give you an understanding of how we understand Joel 2.30 and these cosmic disturbances. Does anybody have anything to add or comment? Here, uh, uh, I have a mic that works if anybody wants to ask about this. Here, let me show you, Eric, you. All right. Hi, you. <laughs> it's good to see everybody. Oh, I like the tables. Yeah, they're kind of handy. They let us have tables. Good. I'm glad they're back. That's great. Well, if anybody has, uh, if nobody has anything, I'll just keep moving on. I know I've hit this before, but you never know. Um, sometimes it's a, I know it's a confusing issue, but I can certainly move on. Let me move on then from there to the next slide. Now, when we get to verse 32, we're really asking the question, well, how can anyone be saved in light of this great and terrible day of Yahweh? And this is what Joel answers. Notice in Joel 3.32, excuse me, that should be 2.32, by the way. That's a, I've got a, a misprint there, a typo. Again, it's Joel 2.32. It says, then it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, dear ones, notice in blue, he says, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Peter at Pentecost translates delivered with sozo or saved. Okay, so that's how he understands it. Now, what's very interesting is here we have the universal call. The universal call that whoever will call upon the Lord is going to be delivered from the great and terrible day of Yahweh. They're going to be saved. They are going to be those who the Lord will rescue, as it were. Okay, so the universal call Peter uses in his sermon at Pentecost to call people to come to faith in Christ. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But what I want you to see is that here you have the universal call, but you also have the effectual call. Notice it says, even whom among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Okay, so here you have the universal call. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord who calls that brings salvation about. Okay, now that doesn't mean God is being coy. It is really a universal invitation and command. Everyone is commanded in Scripture to repent and to believe the gospel. We see that in Mark 1.15. But we know the only ones who are saved are those who that the Lord calls. One good example of the effectual calling 
you don't have to turn to it, but remember in Romans 8.30, it talks about those who were predestined, and those who were predestined were called. For those that were called were justified, and those that he justified, he also glorified. All the verbs are aorist, meaning past tense. In God's eyes, it's already done. But the idea of the calling there in Romans 8.30, called, called the golden chain, that's the effectual calling. It's for those that God predestined to salvation. Okay, that's what he's going to bring to salvation. Now, one interesting point, again, this is Joel 2.32. Isn't it interesting to note that the salvation is going to encompass in Joel the salvation that comes to Mount Zion in Jerusalem? Notice he says, for on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. Why do you think Mount Zion and Jerusalem are being singled out? Well, the reason is because when you get into Joel chapter 3, it's about the final battle that surrounds Jerusalem. And that's about what? The narrow day of the Lord. So the idea is it looks very bleak. All the nations are surrounding Israel. All the nations are going to attack Jerusalem. Dear ones, I want you to think about what that's going to be like. All the nations are going to be brought to attack Jerusalem. And it's going to seem that all of God's promises are done. God made an unconditional promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that they would never cease to be a people, that their descendants would be like the sand of the sea or like the, the stars in the heavens, right? The promise was unilaterally committed to by God at the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, and Satan is going to try to make him a liar at this final battle. And so the reason why those in Mount Zion and Jerusalem are being singled out is because that's the final battle when you get into chapter 3. Again, this is Joel 2.32. I had a, a typo there. Okay? All right. Now, one thing I want to wrestle with here is I want to wrestle with how did Peter use Joel 2.28 through 32? I want to talk a little bit about this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. I want to see... How Peter used this. Oh, by the way, before I do that, before you turn there, I just want to point out in Acts 2.36, notice the conclusion of Peter's sermon that we're going to be reading. Notice he says, therefore. The reason the therefore is there, he's coming to a conclusion, isn't he? The conclusion of Peter's sermon is let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. The whole point of Jesus, excuse me, the whole point of Peter's sermon is that Jesus is the name of the Lord that you should call on from Joel 2.32. That's the whole point of his sermon. All right, and that's why he uses the Old Testament prophecies. So again, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you're going to be saved. Well, Peter's point is what? It's this Jesus. That's the name of the Lord that you should call on. Later in, remember Acts 4.12, he says, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He said that before the religious leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. Okay, so that's how Peter is using the sermon. But let me show you what else he does with it. Turn your Bibles again to Acts 2.15 through 20. Let's start in verse 15. Notice he says, remember that they were, seemingly drunk these disciples and the people in jerusalem because the spirit had come upon them they were babbling in other languages but they were understood and he says for these men are not drunk as you suppose for it is only the third hour of the day 
But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And here's why what we've been studying is so significant. Verse 17, he says, and it shall be in the last days. Stop there. Do you remember in Joel 2.28? In fact, let me back up. I want to back up Joel 2.28. Don't try this at home, by the way. I'm a trained professional. I'll never back up in a PowerPoint. Notice it said it will come about after this. Does everyone remember that? Joel understood that phrase is referring to the what? Last days. That's how Joel, or excuse me, that's how Peter is interpreting Joel. So again, Peter's giving a scripture. God is telling us this is about the last, last days in Joel 2, 20 through 30. I just wanted you to see that. Okay, that's how Peter understood it. All right. All right, now that's back where we're. Okay, back to Joel, or excuse me. Acts 2, 17, it will be in the last days God said that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be darkened, turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Verse 21, it says, And it shall be that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Stop there. Notice Peter's point is that through the first coming of Christ, this is now being fulfilled. This is now being fulfilled at the sending of the Spirit that occurred at Pentecost. But here's the question. The $64,000 question or whatever that game show was, is what do we do with Peter's citation of the sun, moon, and stars being darkened? The question is, did that happen? And did Peter understand that is happening on the day of Pentecost in his day? Now, typically there are four different ways of answering that conundrum to this passage. In other words, when Peter says this is being fulfilled in your hearing, what do we, I think we all understand, yes, the Spirit was being poured out at Pentecost. But what do we do with the sun, moon, and stars? There's four different ways that scholars have handled it. Number one, some claim that the sun, moon, and stars were in fact darkened at Christ's crucifixion. And therefore, Peter could cite this as already occurring. I don't think that that's true, because if that were true, I think one of the uh, gospel writers would have cited from Joel 2, 28 through 32. They would have shown that as Jesus was on the cross during that three hours and you had the darkness come upon the land, they would have cited Joel if they thought that that was an application. Okay, so I don't think that that's a valid point. Second possibility is that the sun, moon, and stars were figurative. Now, I laid out earlier in Joel that they were figurative because it meant that the end of the world had come. But the only reason the sun, moon, and stars were figurative of the end of the world is because they knew one day the sun, moon, and stars would be darkened at the end of the world, as is given to us in Isaiah 13 
um, here in uh, Joel. So the figurative, I always look forward to the literal. All right, so I don't think it's figurative here. Third, third option is that the sun, moon, and stars are mentioned by Peter, but they're really not important. He's just right, reading it, and it's just part of the, the citation. I don't think that that's a valid option either. The fourth option, I think, is the best, and that is the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Yes, in the future day of the Lord, Peter knew that. But what Peter knew, listen carefully, is that the sending of the Spirit inaugurated the last days, which inaugurated the era in which the day of the Lord could come. What was shocking to Peter was that the last days had finally dawned so that the day of the Lord now became an imminent threat in reality, an imminent promise to those who trust in Christ, but an imminent threat to those who deny him. What Peter fundamentally understood is that the last days began, yes, with the coming of Christ, but also his sending of the Spirit, as we see in Acts 2.33. In fact, turn your Bibles again to the Acts 2.17. Let me just put two verses together, Acts 2.17 and Acts 2.20. Notice verse 17 it says it will be in the last days. What? Last days that God will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Stop there. What happens in the last days? God pours out his spirit. That's what happened at Pentecost. But what occurs later in the last days? Verse 20 of Acts 2. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. That will one day come in this new epoch of time the day of the Lord that dawned at Pentecost. Again, the last days began with the first advent of Christ and the sending forth of the Spirit. And I think what you and I have to do is have in our minds the significance of what Pentecost really is. It's interesting, we as Christians will celebrate Christmas, we'll celebrate Easter, you know, the, the resurrection, but it's ironic that we don't really ever celebrate the sending of the Spirit. But in the scriptures, it's a big deal. It's the sine qua non of the new covenant community, meaning if the spirit isn't upon you, you don't come to Christ, you don't have a relationship with God, and you're not a partaker of the new covenant community. It's a very big deal. So with that, I'll um, open it up to some questions or comments. I've also got some more slides if, if we don't have any comments or questions, but I'd like to hear from you to talk through this some, if anyone has anything. Uh, I have a question. Sure. Looking at this Joel 3.32. I'm sorry, yeah, 2.32, I'm sorry about the title. 2.32, excuse me. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then, as you already pointed out at the end, it said, whom the Lord calls. Yeah. So you're making a distinction between what we call the universal call and uh, or the external call is sometimes mentioned yeah or the internal call or the effectual call right amen those are theological terms now i interact with uh, new cac readers who are just uh, learning about how to search the scriptures yeah and this is always the first thing that really comes up on people's radar because they're not used to uh theological discussion and as soon as they see this and hear this in fact I got an email pertinent to this this morning before I even came to church uh, from a CAC reader 
they, some people, not, not necessarily my readers, they're just trying to learn, but some people are saying that if you can't have both of these because you have a contradiction. In other words, if God issues a valid universal call, then free will must decide who actually does it. And you can't say there's an effectual call that God does and that those who uh, hear that call were chosen before the foundation of the world. Then you invalidated the universal call and your theology makes no sense. That's what people say and that's what they've heard. Yeah. Now, do you want to address that issue? Yeah, you know, um, it's not valid, as you know, Bob, and I know you know this, um, and I, most of you probably know this as well. But one, one way of disproving that in Scripture, and it kind of reminds me of the issue that Erasmus brought forth when he claimed that certainly God would never command something that people weren't able to do. But what's interesting in the Scripture is we see just that. In fact, remember, Jesus reminds us of, of our obligation to be holy, even as the Father is holy. Now, how many Christians are going to believe that apart from the work of Christ, they can be holy in and of themselves? So when he says you must be holy as God is holy, we all instinctively know through the scriptures that that's absolutely humanly impossible. We cannot do that. We have to rely upon the power of God. And so time and time again, we see the same thing occurring with salvation. Um, Remember the rich man, the rich young ruler, he went sell his possessions. He wouldn't follow Christ. And Jesus says it's easier. Remember, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Well, the disciples catch wind of that and what Jesus is saying. And they say, well, then how is salvation possible? And Jesus says with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So Jesus himself is affirming that salvation is impossible for man. And Bob, you did a wonderful job in your sermon last week showing us why, because we are dead in our transgressions. And that's why we have to rely upon God. People who are dead in their transgressions cannot do that which is pleasing to God and Romans 8.8. 8. So uh, to- I totally agree. And the comeback I get is, well, then why, why doesn't God just zap everybody and be done with it? Yeah. I've heard people actually say that, and I responded, that's impertinent. You shouldn't talk about right. holy things like in a mocking manner. Yeah. God will run his universe as he sees fit. Amen. So what you're saying, Eric, is God actually does command impossibilities. Yes. Uh, because we see that throughout Scripture. Amen. Paul assumes that in Galatians where he says those who were under the law are cursed because it says cursed is he who doesn't abide in all of the things written in this book of the law to do them. And Paul's uh, inference then is everyone under law is cursed because nobody can do everything in the law. Amen. So then the answer or the question is why command what people cannot do in and of themselves? And the answer is that God uses means. And this is his means to show us 
that we have no hope, to show us that we're lost sinners, and that we need to cry out on, to God and call upon the name of the Lord, and convicted by the Spirit, realizing our sin, really realizing that only God can save us and only God can help us, we do call out to God, and He saves us. Amen. Well said, Bob. And then others hear the same thing, and they mock. Right, right. They say, well, this is a bunch of foolishness. Why should I even care about it? I'm happy with my life the way it is. Why should I have all these laws and rules? Why should I listen to Jesus? And we saw that in the gospel. Some people just mocked and went away. Some people ignored it. But some people fell at his feet and cried out to God. And so what I say to people, and I have for decades, is if you're concerned about that, cry out to God. God save me. I'm a helpless, hopeless sinner. And the one who comes, Jesus said, I'll in no wise cast out. Amen. But you know, Bob, I um, what's interesting is is you're talking about that. It's funny. Um, we're the next slide actually talks about the inability of man. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I just forgot about it, but I was I wanted to hit this another time. But what's interesting is here back in the law, Deuteronomy ten sixteen, God commands every Israelite to do something they can't do. He says, "So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer." Now, circumcised heart meant a heart that was responsive to God. An uncircumcised heart was one that was unresponsive to God. So when he says circumcise your heart, he's calling them to have faith. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to have a new disposition, a new will. But they can't do it. So much so that later in Deuteronomy 30, God promises he's going to have to do it for them. He says, moreover, the Lord, your, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Remember, that's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all oh. your soul. Love your neighbors yourself. We can't do that until God circumcises the heart. Well, what's interesting is that's applied to the work of the Spirit. In fact, we see as much as in Colossians chapter 2 that Bob did a wonderful job in teaching. It talks about the circumcision without hands. Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit would circumcise our hearts and enable us to do what we can never do ourselves. So I'm just showing that this goes all the way back to the law. You and I, Bob, aren't teaching something that's just New Covenant theology. It goes from the very beginning. Uh, I totally totally agree. Great point. I hope everybody writes these verses down and remembers this. Glad you have a slide on this because when we're commanded to turn to Christ and to love God with our whole heart, everyone's commanded to do something that's impossible. Amen. Amen. But um, just to illustrate, sometimes we talk about Lazarus in the tomb. Yes. Um, so as, a, as an illustration, we say preaching the gospel and commanding people to repent and believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins is like Jesus telling Lazarus to come forth. Because... Amen. Somebody else could stand out in a tomb and knock on it and say, hey, Lazarus, why don't you get out of there? <laughs> or he was dead and rotting already. And so God gives life to the dead. Amen. And Amen. God circumcises the heart because man can't do that. And God uses means. Amen. So we shouldn't be impertinent and say, well, then why even bother? You know, because, you know, in Romans, Paul... Um, 
anticipated that objection. You will say then, why has he made me thus? It's God's fault I'm like this. He, yeah. Uh, yeah and, and he said, who are you, old man, to reply to God? Yeah. You know, it's just impertinent. Humble our, ourselves. Thank God that he provided salvation and turn to him. Amen. So I, I love this slide here. Uh, and I think it really helps. I think this idea that God can only do what seems fair to man is the reason evangelicalism is apostate right now. Yeah, absolutely. They That's came right. up with everything else under the sun that sounds appealing to man. That's right. Because the gospel offends our sense of self-worth. Right. That, Amen. oh, I can solve my own problems. Just show me the right way to do it. Yeah. That's right. Well, thank yeah, you, Eric. You want to close us in prayer here? I will. Amen. Yeah, you know, uh, Bob, as you said that, it reminds me, we look out in the streets and we see burning and looting, and it's the natural result of trusting in man rather than God. And yeah. that's we're, we're reaping the consequences, absolutely. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've not muddled the ending. The last days, you've given us clear prophecy and understanding through your scriptures of what you've said. We thank you, Lord, for the universal call that you really do invite all sinners to come to you. But we're especially thankful for your effectual call that you enable us by your spirit to trust upon your son, that we can have forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, I pray for Bob. I pray for the message from the pulpit. I pray, Heavenly Father, you give us ears to hear that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers. And I pray for my brothers and sisters for strength, stamina, in these last days, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.